0: Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through the book of Acts. Today, we are looking specifically at Acts 15, 12 through 35. Now, we're in the middle of one of the most significant events in the book of Acts, the Jerusalem Council, or conference. So, let's remind ourselves of what's going on here. In Acts 14, we're told that Paul and Barnabas completed their first missionary journey, their first missionary trip into the Roman Empire. They went to the island of Cyprus, modern-day Turkey, the province of Galatia. And the key cities that Luke tells us about are Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Well, in each of those cities, if there was a Jewish synagogue, that is where Paul and Barnabas started. They would address the Jews and the Gentile God-fearers who were present, and speaking of what was, they would speak of what was written in the Law and the Prophets of the Old Testament. They would speak of how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of a coming Messiah. They would speak of how the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem rejected Jesus and handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. They would speak then of how he rose from the dead, again, just like the prophets had said he would. And then they would speak of the fact that it was through faith in Jesus Christ that a person could be forgiven of their sins. It was through faith in Jesus Christ that a person can be justified, can be made right with God. There would always be a number of people who would believe, become real disciples of Christ, but there were also people who actively opposed their message. And the opposition was generally led by the Jewish leaders in the particular cities. They would do all they could to stop Paul and Barnabas from speaking of Jesus as the Christ. In Pisidian Antioch, for example, the Jews instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas end ended up driving them out of their district. Iconium... A plan was made to stone Paul and Barnabas, but they got word of the plan and were able to escape. In Lystra, Jews from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium traveled many miles with the purpose of continuing their persecution of Paul and Barnabas, and they succeeded in convincing the people of Lystra to join them in stoning Paul and then dragging him through the siege of the city and leaving him for dead. God miraculously raised him up, and Barnabas and, and Paul then left for Derby the next day. They have ministered in Derby, and it was in Derby then they began to retrace their steps and revisit each of these cities. Their stated purpose was to strengthen the souls of the believers in each place, and they organized churches to that end for that purpose. They helped them appoint elders to give spiritual oversight and leadership to those local churches. Then they returned to their home church in Antioch of Syria. This is the church that sent them out as missionaries and church planters. So they share with the disciples in Antioch the things that the Lord had done with them, the Lord had done, things had done through them on their, on their journeys. Well, it was while they were in Antioch that some serious challenges to the gospel that they were preaching were raised. They were raised by some Jewish believers who had come to Antioch from Jerusalem. And they were teaching that these Gentile converts needed to be circumcised if they were going to be truly saved. They needed to observe the law of Moses, probably especially things like keeping the feast, food laws, temple sacrifices, things of that sort. They basically needed to become Jewish proselytes if they were going to be true Christians is what they were teaching. Well, this was wrong. It was trying to add something to the gospel as if faith in Christ was not enough for a person to be saved to be forgiven of their sins and made righteous with God. So Paul and Barnabas immediately began to stand up and, and, uh, against these teachers and debate with them and so forth. Well, soon the leaders in the church at Antioch realized this was something that needed to be addressed more fully, addressed specifically with the apostles and elders of the Jerusalem church. So the Spirit led that, the leadership of that church, of Antioch church, to send Paul and Barnabas and some others to Jerusalem for this very purpose. And the meetings that resulted from this came to be known as the Jerusalem Conference. Well, as I said earlier, this was one of the most significant events in the book of Acts. It's a watershed moment, really, for the church and had major effect on the history of the church. Well, that brings us to the first point, main point on your outline, which is this. The Jerusalem Conference speaks of the importance of standing firm standing firm for the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to both Jews and Gentiles. So the leadership of the Antioch church, which included Paul and Barnabas, and the leadership of the Jerusalem church, which included the apostles, understood how significant this issue was. They understood the gospel was at stake. Salvation is by God's grace. There's nothing man can do to earn God's favor in any way, to add stipulations like you have to be circumcised, you have to become a Jewish proselyte, would be trying to do things meant to earn favor from God. You can't earn that grace. Salvation is by faith alone. It's not by works. Our good works cannot make us right with God. No matter how much a person does, they can never make up for the sins they have committed. No matter how much a person does, they can never be good enough to be accepted by God. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And salvation is in Christ alone. It's Jesus Christ who has accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. And only He could do that. Jesus Christ being fully man and fully God, that was absolutely vital if He was going to earn salvation for all that the Father had given Him in eternity. So on the cross, he died as a substitute for sinners. On the cross, he endured the wrath of God that we deserve. And then he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And our salvation then has been accomplished by Jesus Christ and by him alone. There is nothing we can do to add to what Jesus Christ has accomplished. What the Jewish teachers were doing was contradicting these things. And that had to be addressed. The gospel was at stake. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, there were three meetings involved involving the delegation from the Antioch Church and the brethren from the Jerusalem Church as part of this Jerusalem conference. The first meeting was in the form of a public reception for Paul and Barnabas. At this meeting, they spoke of all the things the Lord had done through them as they visited multiple cities in the Roman Empire. And at the conclusion of their report, those believers who were connected with the Pharisees strongly objected. To what they heard about these Gentile converts, they said, "It's necessary to circumcise them, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses." So they bring their opposition right out in, in the open at this initial public reception. Well, there was a second meeting, and that's when the delegation that Antioch had had with the brethren met with the brethren from uh, from the Jerusalem, and it's spoken of in Galatians chapter two. There, Paul tells us that. After the public reception, they had a private meeting with the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And in that meeting, Paul presented the gospel that he had been preaching so that his fellow apostles could hear and the elders of the Jerusalem church could hear what he was preaching firsthand. He did this privately to make sure they were all united on this important issue before it became public, before they went to the pu- another public meeting. Paul knew that he was right. He was not trying to get correction. He knew he, what he was preaching was right. He just wanted to make sure that Jerusalem leadership was on the same page with him, with he and Barnabas. It was after that private meeting that the third meeting took place, and that's the one that's described in most detail here in Acts 15. Uh, it's described especially in verses 6 through 21. If we began looking at those verses a couple of weeks ago. And as we move toward considering the conclusions that were arrived at the the Jerusalem Conference, I want us to look at your second main point on your outline. And that's this. The Jerusalem Conference speaks of the importance of pursuing a substantive unity among believers. A substantive unity, a unity that has real substance to it. As we said, their first motivation was to stand firm on the biblical gospel. But there's something else going on here. It isn't just the Antioch church standing firm. It isn't just the Jerusalem church standing firm, but it was important that they stand firm together. These were the two leading churches of the day. They needed to speak with one voice on the truth of the gospel. This issue was going to affect dozens of smaller churches all over the empire at this point. This issue would affect future mission endeavors. This issue would affect the assurance of salvation for each individual Christian. So this was something that needed to be pursued, again, for the substantive unity of the church. Well, how do we see that illustrated in Acts 15? The first thing uh, that we need to see is not something that's directly spoken of, but it's definitely implied, and so I want to point this out. Christian unity is based on the fact that all true believers are one, in the Lord Jesus Christ, are one. The person and work of Jesus Christ is central, central to all that's going on in this controversy. He's only mentioned directly by name uh, twice in these verses, in, in chapter 15, verse 11, and speaking of the things that the Lord had done through him, Peter says, We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as the Gentiles are. Then over in verse 26, and describing Paul and Barnabas and their ministry and the kind of men they were, it says, they are men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every Christian, every Christian is saved by Christ. Our Christian lives, I mean, every Christian lives with Jesus Christ as their Lord. So what ultimately unites us as Christians is Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus famously prayed about this unity in John 17 on the night that he was betrayed. There were a number of things that he prayed for those who believed in him. And one of his prayers was for our unity. I'm going to read a section of that prayer. and It's, uh, it's in John 17, verse 20 to 22 of the verses I want to read. Jesus prays, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, speaking of his disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you father are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me the glory, which you have given to me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. So Jesus prays that all who would believe in him would be one. Now it's natural to ask whether this prayer of Jesus has been answered or not. Our first response might be to say no, it hasn't. We would probably say that because all Christians are not part of the same organization or the same denomination, but I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Jesus was not praying for organizational unity. Jesus was praying for organic unity. And it's by the gracious and spiritual work of God and salvation that we are saved through faith in Christ. And as a result of that salvation, all believers share in Christ. Every believer has an organic unity with every other believer. We're all part of the body of Christ. Therefore, we are one. We are all vitally connected with one another. Now, the majority of people you're vitally connected with, you've never met and you never will until eternity. But we are vitally connected with every other believer, and no matter what time in history period in history they lived as well. In his prayer, Jesus says, Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, Jesus is not saying that we are now part of the Trinity. But he is saying that there is a definite spiritual oneness, of course, between the Father and the Son, and all who believe in Christ have a spiritual oneness with the Father who chose them and with the Son who accomplished their salvation. Here's a quote by Conrad M. Bayway who helped me a lot on this. He says, you cannot separate... A child of God from God. It's impossible. They are organically one. In the same way, you cannot separate a Christian from another Christian. It's impossible. They are organically one. So if you are a true believer, you are and always will be connected with God as his child because we're in Christ. And if you're a true believer, you are and always will be connected with every other true believer. It cannot be any other way. Jesus prayed it to be so, and it is so. This oneness in Christ is implied here, and it's kind of of an undercurrent for sure, in Acts 15. It's one of the foundational reasons that the believers were compelled to get the gospel right. They were compelled to work together in getting it right. Okay, we're now finally ready to read the passage. All that was introduction. (laughs) So now we're going to begin to read the passage. (laughs) So Acts 15, going to pick up in verse 6 and read through verse 21. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent as they were listening to Barnabas and Saul, as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, and from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So based on the oneness that these believers already have in Christ, they are given serious attention to address this issue together. And we see something that's extremely important in pursuing a Christian unity with real substance to it. That's this next point. Christian unity is dependent on the revealed truth of the one true God. On the revealed truth of the one true God. Peter is not just sharing his feelings on this issue. Paul and Barnabas are not just sharing their feelings on this issue. James is not just sharing his feelings on this issue. What they share is dependent on the truth that God himself has revealed to them. That's what they're considering. So let's consider first the things that Peter brought up. What we see is that God revealed to the apostle Peter that by his divine decree, both Jew and Gentile are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior. Peter was an apostle. He was one of the men to whom God revealed truth. In verses 7-11, through Peter reminds those at the conference of some things God revealed through him. In a supernatural way, the Lord brought Peter together with a Gentile named Cornelius. And when Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius and his family and friends, they heard and they believed the gospel. These Gentiles trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. And Peter points out that God clearly confirmed that their faith and their salvation was genuine because he caused the Holy Spirit to come down upon them in great power just like he had done with the Jewish disciples at Pentecost. Peter warns the people to take careful notice that God made no distinction between Jew and Gentile in regards to being right with God. And since God made no distinction... What right did they have to put stipulations on the Gentile believers? God clearly did not require that the Gentiles become Jews in order to become Christians. As Christians, they're united in abiding by the truth that God has revealed, in this case, through one of the apostles. Then we see a further example of this. Consider what James said in verses 13 through 18. James points out, Point number two, that God revealed to the Old Testament prophets that it was his will to take a people for himself from among the Gentiles. So God's revelation through the prophets was in agreement with what God revealed through the apostle. James quotes from Amos 9 verses 11 and 12 at this point to illustrate this issue he speaks of the Lord promising to rebuild the tabernacle of David in verse 16 there. Now one thing to note here, this is not a reference to the temple. It's speaking of more that the idea of the tabernacle in the sense of a tent. It's talking like the family of David is being like a hut or a fallen tent. Because with the fall of Judah, the line of the kings as the descendants of David came to an end. So the family of David was in ruins. Even though that would be the case, James is pointing out this next point. In Scripture, God promised to restore the house of David. This happened in the coming of Jesus as the Christ. So it was promised to David that one of his descendants would reign on his throne forever. That was a prophecy of the Messiah, of the Christ. And you remember... What the angel Gabriel told Mary when he told her she was going to give birth to the Messiah, he says, the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. So the house of David was restored in the coming of Jesus as the Christ. By the way, notice this. Look at verse 15. Look how James introduces this text from Amos. He says, just as it is written, the very fact that he's using that phrase, is a reminder to everyone that he's quoting from the very inscripturated word of God. That's what he's quoting from. So he's saying this is God's revelation. We need to take it seriously. This is what he says through the prophets. So, what purpose does Amos attach to this restoration of the house of David? Well, he says in verse 17 that the Lord will make this happen so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So we see here this next point that in conjunction with the establishment of the kingdom of Christ, Gentiles from all over the world would be called to salvation. The kingdom of Christ was never intended to be limited to Jewish people who would believe. It was always intended to extend to all mankind, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, There will be Gentiles all over the world who are called by God to be his children. And when they are called by his name, they will respond in faith to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then James added a short quote from Isaiah 45, 21. He kind of just tacks it on the end of his quote from Amos. And Isaiah 45, 21, it's quoted there in verse 18. It says, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. So reminded again that this is something the Lord himself said through the prophets. This decree from God was made known long ago. So the inclusion of Gentiles from nations all over the world was not an afterthought. It was God's divine plan from the beginning. And by the way, the very context of that Isaiah 45 quote, is that God will gather sinners from all over the world to come to him for salvation. It's exactly the same idea as we see from the prophecy in Amos. So everything James says here is based on God's revelation to man through his prophets. Believing the word of God is a significant aspect of the oneness that we have as Christians. All true Christians are to have a confidence that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the inspired word of God. I mean, that is such a, a vital, it's in, just an important aspect of our unity in Christ. It is a truth that is, so, that, that is so important as we work and live together as Christians. So we've seen from the Jerusalem Conference that pursuing a, real, a unity with substance is important. It's based first on the fact that we're all one in Christ, that's the starting place, And it's based, secondly, on the revealed truth of of the Lord. And now, thirdly, we see that the focus on Christian unity should build up and encourage believers in their faith. It should encourage believers in their faith. So, after his reference to the Old Testament prophets, James then makes some suggestions based on these revelations from Peter and the prophets. Things to guide them in dealing with these challenges to the gospel in biblical and godly ways. So, we see that, one, Gentile believers were given guidance on things that would enable them to live in harmony with Jewish believers. Okay, look now at verses 19 to 26. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them, that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we, had, we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So James suggests that they ask the Gentiles to give special attention to four things. The apostles, the Jerusalem church at large, they, and the elders, they unanimously agree on these things. They tell the Gentiles to abstain from things contaminated by idols. Now this is likely referring to eating meat that had been offered up as an, to an idol as a sacrifice. Um, if you wanted to get a good deal on meat... That's where you would go. You would get the meat that had been offered up to an idol and sacrifice, and you, that's the good. That was that was where the good deals were for the market. But that was, but there can be issues with that. They're also told to abstain from fornication or sexual immorality. That's an obvious thing. They're also told to restrain from eating what is strangled. And if uh, because if an animal if an animal was strangled to death, that means the blood was not drained. Out before the meat was eaten, and they are also told they should not directly consume blood. Now, the issue of the blood here uh, is really the idea that blood is the life, and uh, of course, the blood is actually given as atonement for men. And there seems to be here the idea of kind of maintaining a reverence for the blood, especially of course, pointing ultimately to the blood of Christ. Now, it seems likely that James took these things. From the Bible, from Leviticus 17 and 18. Of course, he would do that. In those chapters, there were regulations that were required of the aliens, they were described there, which is Gentiles, people who were living among the Israelites. And all of the things that James listed can be found in those two chapters, Leviticus 17 and 18. So there were applications from the law that needed to be considered. And once again, we see an example of their dependence on the revealed truth of the word, of uh, real the tr- real tr- revealed truth of God. But these things were also, all four of these things were also connected with the practice of idolatrous temple feast. These feasts were like big celebrations that were common among the Gentiles in the Roman Empire. And of course, you know, the whole community is going to participate most of the time. Well, fornication is clearly forbidden in the Ten Commandments. But the concern seems to be that if the Gentiles continue to participate in these feasts, which actually were at their core were pagan feasts, then they might be tempted to go with the fornication things that are offered there as well. The eating of meat offered up to idols was a controversial subject that Paul dealt with several times in some of his, other, in some of his letters. But here, for the sake of living in harmony with Jewish believers, Gentile believers are encouraged to refrain from all aspects of these popular pagan feasts. James then reminds them, says, The law was read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So for harmony with the Jewish believers, and as a witness to those Jews who did not yet believe, they say, Gentiles were encouraged to abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If they would keep themselves from these things, they would do well. So these would be things that would be helpful to both Jewish and Gentile believers in walking out their faith with one another. Another thing we see that encouraged them in their faith is that Gentile believers rejoiced. They rejoiced because the biblical truth of salvation through faith in Christ was clearly affirmed. So along with Paul and Barnabas, the Jerusalem church sent two of their key leaders uh, to deliver this letter to the Antioch church, to the Antioch believers, and they sent Judas, who was also called Barsabbas and Silas. we well, read this about, uh, in, in verse 30 and 31. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So the Gentile believers were greatly encouraged. I mean, they knew they had been saved because they believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. They knew their salvation was all of God's grace. They knew they had done nothing to deserve it. They knew they were, not, they were saved by grace and not by works. The Jewish teachers who were saying they had to become Gentile proselytes to be saved were saying that sa- their salvation depended on their works. So they rejoice that those at the Jerusalem conference affirmed the grace of God and their salvation. They were greatly encouraged. Quote here by Will Mesker. Will Mesker has written the best book that I know of on evangelism. And uh, here's what he said about the importance of grace, one of the things he said. He said, in a God-centered gospel, grace is central. God is exalted at every point and the outworking of it from its design and all of eternity, through its outworking in Christ and its application to His people. Grace is a part of all of it. So grace is central to the gospel. When you lose grace, you lose the true gospel. God in His grace purposed our salvation in eternity, just by grace. He purposed that our salvation... Again, by His grace, He purposed that our salvation would be fully accomplished through Jesus Christ. Not something we would do, but what Christ would do. That was purposed in eternity past. came became reality when Christ came to earth and actually, and actually accomplished that salvation. And it's God in His grace who applies that salvation to individual sinners. It's grace from the beginning, grace all the way through. So upholding that truth is really worth rejoicing in. I mean, the one thing we do not want to do is have God to judge us, and that's our salvation to be dependent on our works, on whether we are measuring up. There has to be this understanding that we are in Christ. We are only saved by His grace and by the work of Christ. That's what gives us our confidence before God. So upholding that truth is key to true Christian unity. Finally, we see that both Gentile and Jewish believers gathered together to be encouraged by, what else? The word of the Lord. Acts 15 reveals a serious challenge to the gospel. Paul and Barnabas and the Antioch church stand firm for that biblical gospel. The apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem church stand firm for the biblical gospel. Peter answers the challenge to the biblical gospel by sharing what God had revealed to him through the events with Cornelius. James answers the challenge by appealing to the Old Testament prophets. The guidance given to the Gentile believers by James was taken from the book of Leviticus. So the revelation of God in the scriptures has been key in calling the Christians to be unified on the gospel. So in the final verses, we see an emphasis on encouraging the believers in their faith. And of course, how did they do that? Well, look at verses 32 to 35. Judas and Silas also, being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. It seemed good to Silas to remain there, though. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. So we see that Judas and Silas preached lengthy and I'm sure richly biblical messages to the believers in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas were active in preaching and teaching the word of the Lord. I mean, the focus on the word of the Lord is a required aspect of living in a true unity among Christians. Our faith has to be based on the scriptures. And as we do that, that ensures that we will hold firm to the fact that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's a word that we have readily available to us. Thank you so much for that blessing. And I want to thank you for the example that we see here in the Jerusalem Conference and, 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 and events related to it of the emphasis that the early believers in the first century The emphasis they placed on the Scriptures, what an example that is to us. They were faced with a very difficult challenge, a very difficult situation. Arguments were being made back and forth. Debates were happening. What was going to take place here? It's just so encouraging to see that the way they answered the challenge was to go to the Scriptures. Lord, thank you for that challenge. Help us to continue to grow in our understanding of your Word and our application of it in our lives, and even in how we relate to each other. Thank you for that word. And I thank you also for the fact that we are admonished here, and we see the example of how important it is to make sure that we never lose the core of the gospel. Again, there's all kinds of challenges. There were in the first century. There continue to be challenges to the gospel. But Lord, thank you for this reminder that we cannot allow the, the gospel to be diluted or compromised in any way. Help us to stand firm. That has everything to do with our own walk with the Lord and even how we get along with one another, how we worship. Just even the things we do as Christians are informed by your word. But thank you for the gospel. Thank you for being saved by the grace of God. Now, if you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to do that. As I said, it's a, it's, a, it's a salvation that is based on grace from the beginning. And by beginning, I mean from eternity, through all that Christ accomplished and through the application of that gospel to our own lives. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do that. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I do not measure up. I I deceive myself sometimes to think I'm a good person and I'll be fine. But I know that's not true. I have so much sin in my life and I can't make it go away. I can't even be good enough to measure up to what you require. But I know that Jesus Christ did. I know that he accomplished a perfect righteousness, a perfect salvation. And so I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. I want to commit my life to follow him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, you can make a note in your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is